Well, good morning. And happy Feast of the Holy Trinity and also happy Father's Day. There is no question more important and pressing than this, and that is who is God. This is the day that Christians around the world take time to consider one of the greatest doctrines of our faith, the magnificence and the the mystery of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, God is experienced relationally as a three-in-one, one-in-three, not as some abstract theological category alone. Um, I, I spent several days working on this sermon. I mean, it is Holy Trinity. Um, and so I spent a lot of hours preparing this, but out of fun, I, um, when I went home uh, yesterday afternoon, I texted uh, Bill Hall, um, and I just said, so what should I say tomorrow? <laughs> so I was expecting a little bit of a snarky, you know, because Bill is funny, and, um, and you know, I, so I was expecting, just tell him it's a good thing. But that's not what I got, and what I got is just fantastic, and I actually want to read it. It says, the father says, look at my son, I am pleased with him, the son says. Look at my father, my purpose is to do his will. The spirit says, I point you to the son, and I extol the virtues of the father. A mutual admiration society. So let us pray and give thanks. No, no, I'm just joking. I have more to say. But I thought it was fantastic. And so it was just a good summary of actually everything that I really uh, prepared and intended to say this morning. This Sunday can can certainly be difficult uh, because a preacher doesn't want it to be so heady that it becomes a lofty theological treatise. Most preachers want to explain it properly, but at the same time, Um, apply it to everyday life. So why is this such a big deal? Why does the church pause for a moment to think about the reality of the Trinity? To misunderstand God has drastic implications to our faith, formation, and mission. So when we recite the creed and say these things about begotten, not made, of the being, uh, being with the Father, of being one with, uh, one being with the Father, Uh, Do they really matter? Does it mean anything? Well, historically, an emperor's power hinged on these words. Theologians realized that the faith would rise or fall over these words. Martyrs gave their lives over what these words meant. So yes, they mean something and they are essential for the faith. And that is why in the Holy Eucharist or, or the Mass... We stand and we affirm our faith together using the Nicene Creed and why we say in weekday masses and even in our daily offices, the Apostles' Creed. The creeds summarize the essentials of our faith, the non-compromising essentials. Well, if we know the historical background to our Nicene Creedal affirmation, we will know that it goes back to the 4th century and to debates within the early church over a famous heresy known as the Arian heresy. And what Arius taught was that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, was not eternal, but that he was a creature, that he was created by the Father. Now Arius was a priest in the Diocese of Alexandria in Egypt in the 4th century AD, and it happened to be a place where uh, there was a lot of theology discussed and um, was coming out from there. He was a highly respected theologian, but he had this idea that the Son was not always the Son, that the Son was a creature created by the Father. He was the highest of all creatures, but he was in fact created. 
And that started having influence on some of the bishops and priests and churches that, uh, around the world. And so, the Constantine, the emperor, called for this council to take place in his own backyard, and he kind of stayed close by to see what was happening in this council. But they were able to work out these, these issues. He said that Jesus was something like Hercules and Achilles. People during that time knew that that mythological world very well. It wasn't just an ancient memory. Hercules and Achilles were demigods. They were kind of half human and half divine. So Arius said that Jesus was like that, like a hybrid. So in response to that claim that there was a time that the sun was not, great saints like Athanasius rose up, rose up to defend the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, that Jesus isn't just fully human, he is also fully divine and has existed from all eternity. That Jesus Christ is equal to the Father in his substance and in his divine nature. So the Council of Nicaea addressed this issue, corrected the heresy, and developed this creed in consistency with the teaching of the Holy Scripture and the first two centuries of the early church that preceded this council, and that creed has been used in the church ever since. Now this is a bit of fun history, but I have to share it with you because I think it's funny. St. Nicholas, uh, bishop uh, in Myra, um, in, in ancient My- um, excuse me, Asia Minor, went to the council, and yes, this is the St. Nicholas where we get the contemporary understanding, though very flawed and very skewed, of Santa Claus. And he got tired of hearing Arius' nonsense, so he got up in the meeting and he slapped Arius in the face. Well, you know, that's, that's how we handle heresies, right? No, I'm just, it's, a, it's an option. Uh, but anyway, I just had to share that. So in the Nicene Creed, we say this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. So why do we say that every Sunday and a shorter version throughout the week in the Apostles' Creed? Because we are confessing one thing, and rejecting something else. We are saying, Arius and all the other heresies, you're wrong. And we're affirming what is right and what is essential. So if he was made or created like Arius taught, then there was a time that when he didn't exist and he was just a creature. And we are certainly rejecting that in the creed. And yet we are affirming that the Father is always the Father and the Son is always the Son and they are both true God because they are both eternal divine persons. So there was never a time when Jesus was not. So when the Father was dreaming about the world that he wanted to make, Jesus was dreaming with him. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit loved the world so much that God the Son came to earth in the incarnation to announce and demonstrate and embody the kingdom of God. He died and and rose again for our redemption. He appeared to many after his resurrection. He ascended and exalted to God's right hand. And then he sent the Holy Spirit, as we celebrated last week in the Feast of Pentecost, to guide us into all truth, which is what our gospel reading was about this morning, and to comfort and to empower, to seal, to dwell in our hearts, etc., Now, the liturgical calendar is broken up into two major parts. The first part, we see what God has done for us. 
And the second part, we see how we respond to what God has done for us. And we make this transition today on this Sunday called Trinity Sunday. So we enter into a time called ordinary time, but it's a time not that ordinary, but where we take our fellowship of Jesus Christ, our discipleship seriously, and we learn how to apprentice ourselves to him. And I think I've probably said this, if not every year, almost every year since I've been your rector, uh, that, you know, sometimes we leaders will make comments like, oh, it's the long green season, you know, and or it's the long boring green season, meaning that it's going to be about six months that we're going to have the color green and green and so forth. And, and I, I say, wait, wait, wait. It, it, it might be the ordinary time, and it might be a long season, but it is not boring. That is where we talk about the essentials of discipleship. And so, just as a reminder, but you know what? I haven't heard those kind of comments since I've been saying that for, for a while. So that's a good thing. So our spiritual formation and transformation does not first start by looking at our sins and our weaknesses. And even though we are fully aware of them, or at least, hopefully, we are. Now, some of us who have grown up in the um, evangelical tradition, uh, we've been taught how to share our faith, and we often start that story with the fall. And I just want you to know, I think that is a horrible mistake. Because the beginning of the Bible started with what? Creation. Creation. Absolutely. Well, anyway, that's another story, but I just wanted to share that uh, with you. Our transformation starts with the character and the nature of God as Trinity. In relationship, in community, inviting us to live in this community with Him. So our transformation as disciples takes place as we willingly submit to God's dance. His plan, His unfolding story at work in and through the Holy Trinity. So on Pentecost, God sent the Holy Spirit to fill and empower His church so that they can go and make disciples. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we saw the work of the Holy Spirit. He would come and He would fall and anoint for particular tasks and He would leave. But when God sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, He sent the Holy Spirit to come and to stay and to live inside the hearts of all believers. So Jesus commanded us to go and to train everyone far and near in this way of life, immersed in the fundamental reality of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is how it works. If we hesitate to even say that God is smart or wise, we will not follow Him. I want you to think about that. That's important for us to understand. If we don't think that God knows what is best about every area of our lives, and I'm just going to use one example, and that is our sexuality, then we will not submit our sexuality to God. But fill in whatever you want to fill in there. It applies. If we don't think that he is smart and wise, then we will make excuses and say, if it feels so good, then how can it be wrong? The only way we will ever follow God is if we acknowledge that he is smart and he is wise and he knows what is best about the way we are to live our lives. Since he is our creator, then we need to follow him. The reality is that every normal person has all kinds of fleeting thoughts and urges and temptations. Um, And and this is normal, and temptations are not sin. We're not weird. However, since we center our lives around Jesus and His ways, we submit our fleeting thoughts and urges and temptations to Him, and we do not act on them. 
Now, I know that sometimes we do. I know we sin, we fall, and we are to confess and to repent of our sins and to um, then lean into the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, all that God offers us so that we can walk a life of obedience. And sometimes we submit with tears and trembling and with white knuckles. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or am I the only one? Because the urges are so strong. But he gives us everything we need to overcome to live a life of obedience. So as Paul tells us in Romans 12, and I'd like to, be use, I'd like to use the words from the Message Bible, which is a paraphrase, that says, take our everyday, ordinary life, our sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for us, fixing our attention on God, readily recognizing what He wants from us, and quickly responding to it. But we have to realize that He is smart and wise, and He is King, He is Creator, and He knows what is best for us. And we invite others into this community of oneness, this dance with God to immerse all ourselves into this Trinitarian reality. So we take our will, our ability to act, and we immerse it into this reality of God, the kingdom of God, and we follow Him. So we need to move out from the only reality that many of us know, the reality of the world, the reality of our own thoughts and hearts and urges and desires, the reality of, our, of the, the lies that dominate our thinking and acting, the reality in which we grew up, the reality where we find our meaning and purpose in people and accomplishments and sexual identity and so many other things. And we are to move under the Trinitarian reality that humanity finds its meaning and purpose in life being made as humans in God's image, the image of the triune God living under this kingdom reality. So we find in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit something beyond our own individualistic needs. This Trinitarian God invites us to find and derive our meaning and purpose in life from Him. And as we enter this dance, this relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and align our wills with Him, we find someone worth following and a purpose for living. The Trinity is a distinctly Christian doctrine. Our belief in God separates us from secularists and Buddhists. Our belief in a personal God separates us from New Age mystics and Hindus. Our belief in the Trinity separates us from universalists and Jews and Muslims. In John's Gospel, it states, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all... Are you sure? Truth. Thank you. It is truth. Right answer. And as Jesus states in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is less about statements of fact or propositional affirmations. Now, I, I want to stop here and, and remind everyone. Uh, many of us have grown up in, in systems where we have learned that truth is, it, or, or the, a systematic theology book is like an, a, an encyclopedia. If we want to go find the answer, we just get a systematic theology book. I, I want you to know that theology and doctrine is so much more than just propositional statements. Truth is a person. And it is Jesus. And truth comes through relationship in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, Jesus points out that this truth will bring glory to Him. And once again, this is especially true in our Western culture that glorifies the individual. This rugged individualism prompts people to evaluate nearly every experience and every relationship in terms of what it does for me. 
Christianity is a relationship with the triune God and His body, the church. You know, marriages stumble because the perceived needs of one or both partners are not being met. People even choose churches on the basis of programs of the church, the worship service length and style of music, or what kind of, yeah, that style of music, you understand? Have you been there? Have you done that? Have you experienced those fights? Yes. Um, And from time to time, I still hear things about that. Um, Even though we work hard to sing songs, contemporary and old, that are theologically rich. But nonetheless, we all have styles that we prefer. But sometimes we don't always need to talk about them. We don't always need to make a big deal or make it a point of frustration and anger when sometimes you can just see the frustration going on with somebody. And I tell people, we love both as long as they're theologically rich. It's very important. Very important to us. You know, some people choose church based on the personality and the charisma of a pastor or whether the building fits their individual uh, tastes and desires. Um, you know, I, I've had a, a couple people over the almost seven years I've been your rector on the way out tell me how much they absolutely love the service. And you know what they said? But an hour and a half? And I say, oh, I'm sorry. I know it sometimes can be long. Um, they said, yeah, it's just a little bit too long. And I say, well, you know what? Just, just so you'll know, one thing about All Saints, we're, we're not a fast food drive through and that doesn't always, uh, it's not always, uh, I don't know how they always respond to that, but nonetheless, I'm making a point. This isn't where you come get your little pithy word and get the magic pill. Think about that one. It's so much more than that. Now, in the first service, it, 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 you know, if it's the time is a concern, you know, we, we normally average about an hour. Um, but the point is, don't forget, I come from a tradition where we preach for 45 minutes. So I think 20 to 21 minutes is pretty darn good. (laughs) Did you notice that in all of these situations, it's always about the individual? However, the relational model shows us in our text this morning and points out how truth will glorify Jesus Christ, a more adequate criteria for evaluating any decision in life. Our gospel reading expresses the heart of the inner relationship, this community among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, the Spirit will glorify Jesus because He will bring me glory by telling you whatever He receives from me. In verse 15, we learn that all things belong, all that belongs to the Father is mine, referring to Jesus. And then the Spirit will tell you whatever He receives from me. So Jesus is confident that relying on the guidance of the Spirit of truth, the community will be led where it needs to go. So where the community needs to go is not merely to a deeper intellectual um, understanding of Jesus alone, but to a life that is shaped and molded in his image and sent on mission to make disciples who make disciples. So the community that John seeks to form is not only one that is orthodox, who has right understanding and right beliefs, but one that also corresponds morally and ethically obediently with Jesus and carries out the kind of ministry that reflects Jesus' ministry. And that's what sometimes is called orthopraxy, right practice. So orthodoxy and orthopraxy are very important to us as Anglicans, especially in the Anglican Church in North America. And Jesus is confident that such a community is possible because of this relationship between the Holy Trinity, working in relationship with the church who is carrying out his mission. 
So God invites us to participate in this very triune life of God. God invites us into the love triangle. God invites us to participate in this very relationship that unites the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The proper response to the Trinitarian mystery of God's being and working is wonder and worship for His majesty, holiness, and grace, among many other things, and our invitation to submit and live under His rule and reign under kingdom reality. So let's move away from our, our, the only reality and uh, a story that is it's based around us and submit ourselves to his bigger and better story, the reality of the Trinitarian community of the kingdom of God. So like the prophets Isaiah in our Old Testament reading this morning and John the Divine in our epistle from Revelation, they were taken into the very throne room of heaven. And I have to say, right, right before walking out in the first service, Laurel, the lay reader, said, you know what I love about our first two readings? Is the first reading was about the past tense and the second reading was about the present tense. And I thought for a moment, thought, all the hours of studying, I didn't even come up with that. You know, just think about that was powerful. It was profound and it's so true. But, but both Isaiah and John the Divine, they encounter the majesty and holiness of Almighty God and how worthy He is to receive glory and honor and power for He created all things. And we join with all of those who have gone before us in worshiping the Holy Trinity and surrendering ourselves to Him and His purposes. As I've said, this is the ultimate reality. But we're joining with all of those who've gone before us and all of those are in, that are in the presence of Almighty God right now in what we call heaven. We're joining with them in what we do here in this song of praise. And there's something very powerful about that. But this heaven and this earth are not as separated as many of us have been taught and thought. Heaven is close beside us. It's intersecting with our ordinary reality. It's overlapping, if you will. And and it is our prayer that the one that Jesus taught us to ask for more of heaven to come to earth. And of course we wait for the day when we experience the bodily resurrection, the fullness of the kingdom at the return of Jesus Christ, when he will come to finally renew all things and create a new heaven and a new earth. John the Divine in Revelation is revealing to us that behind the complex and messy confusions of church life in ancient Turkey that was going on during that time that he was writing, behind the challenges of the synagogues and the threatening rulers and um, the emperors and the Roman Empire that was persecuting early followers of Jesus Christ, because he was speaking in that contemporary situation and he was speaking of what was happening and what was about to happen when the Christians were being persecuted. And behind the perplexing struggles and difficulties of ordinary Christians today, because this all applies to us as well, there stands the heavenly throne room in which the world's creator and Lord remains sovereign. And only by stopping in our tracks and contemplating this vision can we begin to glimpse the reality which not only makes sense of our own realities, but enables us to to win the victory until he comes again. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. I didn't know I can get so excited about talking about the Feast of the Trinity. Anyway, that's what happens with the lack of sleep. But praise God. Let us pray. Maybe a little bit too much caffeine too. I don't know. Father in heaven, may your love be with us. Lord Jesus Christ, may your grace be with us. 
Holy Spirit, may your presence be with us, with all of your people in every place, this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.